Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hello, everyone. Wanted to welcome everyone back to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast Live Edition, uh, where we interact with people through Discord. Um, it really aims, and this podcast aims to cover the burning topics related to all threat hunting and security stuff and things we just want to talk about in general. So um, just as a reminder, throughout the podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. So if you haven't joined that, uh, you'll find the information um, listed, and then you can participate. So make sure you sign up using the link in the welcome message. Uh Quick introductions. I'm Scott Poley. I'm a threat hunter at Cyborg Security. Have a vast amount of random experience throughout my career in security. You can check me out on LinkedIn and connect me there. And I'll pass the torch over to how about Lee? And he's not the new guy. Hey everyone, I'm Lee Argonaut. I am a content developer and trainer here at Cyborg. Um, we are, or I also threat hunt in my main time. Um, I'm pretty customer facing and I run a, some of the, uh, the trading and the threat hunting train that we've created here, um, both internally uh, and externally. And I have about 10 years IT experience-ish, maybe. Check me out on LinkedIn. I see the resume. I'll pass it off to Rob. Yeah, I'm Rob Curry. Um, you can check me out on LinkedIn as well at Cybersecurity. You will find out no information about me. I have about 10 years. <laughs> of uh, IT background, uh, five in security, I'd say five or six. Uh, I am a threat hunter content developer here. Also uh, do a little customer facing things as well. Cool. So well, with that- About his invite to show up here because he hasn't checked his LinkedIn very much. <laughs> the privacy has gone too far. <laughs> so for anyone that is joining the live edition for the first time, we do have a themed cocktail we always uh, provide. You'll see that in the Discord chat. Um, that's kind of what I got right here. It's interesting, but uh, it's always fun. So, yeah, check that out if you want. Um, and you can always leave us information if you like it or not, too, uh, towards the end. Uh, but we typically start this off with kind of diving into what we call the interesting artifacts um, that we typically find on the Internet. So we dive in, talk. Uh, through them and then kind of uh, converse with each other about them and any comments you guys may have or input as well because a lot of times like for instance I'm going to share a bunch of random tooling stuff that I found on GitHub that you guys might find interesting so I guess I'll kick it off and I've actually got four things to share one's really associated with one GitHub repo so the first is um, it's from there's a GitHub repo owned by Orange Cyber Defense uh, they're a company that does some uh, monitoring and responding and research and things like that. Um, but they have a repo called GoAd, um, or GoAD, I guess is maybe what it makes more sense to call it that. It's a really cool um, Active Directory environment that basically lets you stand up a full um, Forest AD type structure uh, from like a script, scripted Ansible type setup so you can practice penetration testing um and playing with it is a highly vulnerable environment by the way so it's not something if you would set up you want to make publicly exposed because i'm sure you well maybe you do it depends on what your goals are 
Um, but I thought it was a really cool, you know, everyone's always looking to build out labs and things and active directory structure is usually where people spend the least amount of time, at least making complex because it's time consuming. Um, so I thought it was a kind of a cool place. I don't know. Do you guys, have you guys ever set up an AD, um, environment within your labs and stuff or played around with that before? I have not. Uh, my, my lab was more focused towards, uh, malware, uh, analysis um, from a dynamic perspective. Um, never would sit there and say, uh, you know, I was a reverse engineer or static analysis guru. It was all Syslon, it was all Elastic. I just blew it up because um, I was more focused on behaviors of the malware uh, before I got here. So uh, that's kind of a piece that I've never really uh, dove into, but I would love to set up a honeypot with that. That'd be fun. Initially, that's what I can see we're doing with it right now. This has uh, Scott written all over it. <laughs> yeah, about and it's one of those things. I'm always intimidated to try to set up like all the full-fledged features of AD because it always is like, man, I'm gonna have to like think about this. It could be time-consuming. This just sound like once you get it going, they said it took some time uh, to set it up. Like you pretty much like fire it off, walk away for hours, come back, and it's all kind of ready to go. Um, this, yeah. And they give you the minimum specs, which is nice, right? Like how much uh, space, storage space, and memory, and all everything. If you're going to run it on a on a big server machine or box, I mean, so they got, they got me a Docker container, Docker file. That's all I need to see. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, the one thing about these projects that I really do enjoy doing that. Um, I wish I could get back to them. Um, committed to way too much, but. The amount of stuff that you learn from these projects uh, doesn't give you the full like commercial enterprise experience that you get. Mm -hmm. But if you're ever curious about like setting stuff up or like how does this work, I, I think you know Frisco. <laughs> he gave me that old Dell server, and that's all I needed. Like it wasn't like a huge machine. Uh, it took. <laughs> it was funny because I had two Windows VMs on it in Elastic, and it took like couple minutes for the logs to just transfer because it was just old and it was like just legacy but it did the job and yeah, i learned right. yeah. from uh putting that together so yeah so the the other tool and this was kind of a lightweight one um that they had listed was called uh, arsenal um and it was pretty cool because it basically was a way um when you're thinking about using low bins or offensive tools it was like an interactive way where you can type in kind of what you want to do. It'll pull the tool and all the arguments you need like on the fly. So it would build the command line structure for you based on what you're trying to do from their library. So it kind of made um, some of that like offensive type stuff that you wanted to do and try. Now, Grant, I don't know how much is baked in from like all the newer tools or things you may see, but it had a lot of the, I would say, entry level things you see from um, the... I'm trying to think of the lowest level pen testing when people get certified for that. But uh, it's got all that basic stuff, and it's really nice because it lays out all the different variations of arguments depending on what your goal is. So it's kind of like a Swiss Army knife of you know low-level uh, tools, command line tools. And it apparently interacts with different types of command lines you might be using or different types of terminals. So um, it's kind of a, seemed neat. I haven't tried it, but uh, I kind of get the concept. It just seems like very much of a bear to maintain if you're going to do that. I'll have you guys check that out. It, it's pretty neat because you get like it's like tab completion, and like right. that. But it's a library, right? 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah this is pretty old. I would definitely use something like this. I'm not like an offensive guru. Uh, I know enough, right? This is, you know, this might have some stuff that you might not think about, right? Across several tools, right? So that's definitely you always cool. use a tool the same way, right? And this gives gives you like different variations and possibly different. And it, it does uh it gives you like an explanation of what the differences are too. Yeah, and this thing is because that probably reads better than Microsoft's documentation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you just got to read pages of documentation to answer one small question. That's normal. Yeah, right. Uh, I need those 95. Yeah. And then the, the last just, thing they have. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just It looks, oddly enough, uh, if anybody's ever used Brute Rattel, I mean, with the descriptions and everything in there, it kind of looks like that. <laughs> just kind of threw me there. I didn't expect to see like the same kind of setup, but yeah, kind of cool. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I have flashbacks for sure. <laughs> so the other thing I want to mention, which was a fantastic repo. So I remember working in a space where we had, you know, different types of protocols that were in industrial control um, type thing being um, in the energy sector. But I also know that's always been a challenge for people in cyber to kind of move over and do OT-based security and, and having the understanding there and stuff like that. They have what they call the awesome industrial protocols. Uh, they list out a bunch of different protocols, and they even give articles about different attacks on the protocols. And within them, they provide even the Wireshark filtering. So if you were actually getting a PCAP of the protocol, how you can like pull it out of a PCAP. Um, and then sometimes they even have sample PCAP. So if you don't have access to that data from the from uh, packet capture, uh, you can pull theirs in and at least look at it and kind of understand how it's constructed and what may be contained in there. And this would have been great, right? Trying to understand like, hey, this is a protocol we use. And it's like, well, that's not something I get training on. That's not something I've seen before, but it's something you, you may need to be familiar with it at the least. And it really helps bridge the gap too. Like if you can just start using some of the speak um, of people that work in like the skid engineering or people that work industrial controls. It's almost like you now have not no longer a mystery man that they don't want to talk to. It's like they immediately like, okay, so you know something. So we can now kind of talk to you and bring you in a little more, a little closer. So um, it's good to have that. So I saw that. And I just thought it was a great resource. The fact that it has the ports and protocols that it communicates over is already a starting point. Like it's a great library, right? But they, all, but the fact they have data too, I thought was just impressive. Oh, absolutely! But that's just the first thing I saw was like, oh, it gives you an artifact to go off of, mm -hmm. and then of course all the references that it's using, uh, which I always appreciate because I hate reading an Intel report that's like, it did this, and there's just a bunch of lack of details. Of <laughs> yeah, cool. This is like here it is. That's great. Like specifically in OT, you're like, you hear about all these attacks, you're like, what does that look like, right? All the time. And this mm -hmm. is pretty cool to exactly see what that is. Because OT is like yeah. a cloud. It's just like... Yeah, it's, it's a mystery for IT folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and then the last one I threw in there. So, originally, I was just going to go with the orange cyber defense, you know, repos. Um, but I saw something that came out like two weeks ago, and it's called uh, SciCat. And I thought this was interesting because it's an exploit finder. I don't know, like some people think, um, you know, this might be more offensive driven where it's like, oh, if I'm looking for an exploit, it can find it because it's looking through all these different exploit uh, database repos or, you know, places uh, online. But I also thought, you know, because you can do keyword searches and things like that defensively, 
I haven't played with it, but it'd be really cool to be able to pipe in like maybe some of the product names or version numbers that you actually have. So you can regularly kind of pull your own reports and say, oh, when does an exploit drop and things like that? Or even better, you know, people see vulnerabilities hit. And, you know, the first question is like, what am I supposed to do? And it's like, well, you can monitor now for when an exploit will actually drop or be publicly available at least. Because, I mean, obviously there might be exploitation happening that's not public. And you usually hear some reporting of that when their vulnerability is released. But once it becomes public, it really ramps up quickly when people start grabbing that and trying it and, you know, using it essentially. So being aware of that kind of when it hits or being on the lookout, I thought this was a great tool for that. So I don't know if you guys have checked that out or ever tried to determine whether or not something is, you know, at risk of being exploited and trying to figure that out, answer that question. So That's pretty cool. Once again, uh, exploit DB, look at it, information mm -hmm. there. That's really cool. That's a nice uh, proactive defensive uh, tool that you got there. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, I, I think it's more written for offensive, but, you know, I think some of the – I mean, if you think it's sports, like sometimes a good offense is a good defense, you know, or vice versa. So, yeah, uh, I think so I'm just trying to think like that. All <laughs> I think it's like <laughs> you can use this to identify your weaknesses. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, well, that's that is, cool. I'm all I'm all about being proactive. This is, like you said, maybe not used for offense. I mean, you've turned uh, Bloodhound on his head before, and you know, used it for something it wasn't meant for. So this is <laughs> once again right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> Anything lets me play with data, right? It's just kind of like where I like to dig into. I like so, yeah. The repo, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's all I have um, for my artifacts. Um, and if anybody has ever seen these before, I have something similar that they've used for um, that. Please throw it in the Discord. Uh, we'll definitely check it out um, and you know add that to our repository of things. But uh, yeah, Lee, I think you're up next. That's correct. So I found, uh, and I think you already mentioned the term, living up land binaries. Um, I found this GitHub tool or repo that's called uh, living up land spoof. So LOL spoof. And it reads that it's an interactive shell program that automatically spoofs the command line arguments of the spawn process. And then it goes on to technical details about how that's done. So, of course, if you tell me something is going to be stealthy or hide in plain sight, the first thing I want to do is say, all right, I'm going to run this. And I'm going to take a look from my log's perspective. Now, I think um, looking at the results, the first thing I noticed is I used Splunk right away because I was like, I got Sysmon there, which is Microsoft EDR pretty much. I'm going to take a look at it. So I, I didn't rename it, kept it the same, just so I could find it easily and just take a look at the behaviors. And the first thing I come across is it's a pan process, which makes sense. Lol spoof being the pan process of kicking or uh, spawning these processes, which um, I guess I'll get to that in a second. Um, but if you look at the pictures, if you look at the command line arguments, there are none, except for this one. This one, I tried something different. I tried executing it directly from the command line versus entering the tool and then uh, executing the command. Um, but if you look over here, there's very little command line argument artifacts. Uh, there's this one, the command.exe slash c cls, because 
I actually cleared it. And for some reason that got picked up, but all the output and the command line arguments from like, uh, it wasn't just reg.exe. It wasn't just ping. You see those kicking off, but you don't see the command line arguments, which I was like, okay, fair enough. You won that round. And I was like, well, let's go into something that's a little more detailed, right? Let's go with something that has more of a uh, deeper look at your system, an EDR, um, because they have a lot more visibility into, um, I guess, the system in general than just the event logs sitting on top. So now what I found was I was able to find the arguments. Um, as you can see, I pinged some stuff. I actually used FTP straight from uh, lolspoof.exe and transferred a file. Um, or no, no, sorry. I tried to transfer a file, but I don't think the tool has access to the directories. Like I think I've put a dir and I couldn't find anything. Like it, it, it said, just couldn't find any files. So I'm guessing it has that level of separation. Um, but at the end of the day, I was able to use CrowdStrike and find um, the results of the command arg arguments that I ran. Which, in my mind, the first thing that I thought of was that's a great example of why having like defense in depth and multiple layers of monitoring and redundancy is very important. Um, we talk a lot about this, about saying, you know, customers ask if we're going to prioritize a SIM or an EDR, what do we do? Um, and, you know, we've had that conversation, but this visual right here gives you an idea of what level of capabilities those tools have. So Windows event logging, Syspawn, that all sits at a um, different layer than EDRs do, where once again, EDRs a little more in depth. Um, so you could see where the gap would be. Um, if you do have an EDR, it looks like you're in luck, or at least CrowdStrike anyways. Um, I didn't test it on any of the other ones. Um, but that doesn't mean you're lost if you have a SIM. Um, if you only have Windows event logging, you only have Sysmon, that's fine. One of the behaviors that we witnessed uh, is that if you are looking for um, this type of activity, because it's masking the command line arguments, you could simply look for tools and command line arguments that are null or empty. So you could look for ping.exe, which normally you would expect output or you expect arguments to be thrown in there to actually use ping effectively or reg.exe and so on. So what you could so, do, go ahead. I was going to say, you make an interesting comment because that looking for something without arguments is something that I've done to look for potential process injection. Because if someone injects into a tool that expects arguments and now you see it running without it, they, that is another symptom of that as well. But go on. Yeah, it's good, good stuff. Yeah, no. And I, I, I even renamed it later on to run DLL32 um, because I was like, well, you know, I know I'm looking at uh, LulzFoof. One, will it function the same if you rename it? It's always a question I have. Um, yes, it, it ran. It didn't do exactly what it was supposed to do. And by the way, when you run it, um, the output is exactly what you would see from the command prompt. So it doesn't change the look at all. Uh, it just hides it for you. Um, but yeah, you can look for things that um, processes spawning without command line arguments, especially uh, when you think about the, the discovery tactic where adversaries, when they get into your environment, the first thing I could do is try and learn a lot about your environment. 
they're not gonna when they use like these discovery uh, living off land buyers a lot of them just output values right they just output information so it's not like you're looking for a ping to spawn something else but you can look for a group of these living off the land binaries that are executing but providing you zero information from the command line arguments from any parent process that honestly that's just like a hunt in general that you can look for like you said process injection um, because if you focus on the same um, parent process you're gonna you may miss suspicious ones you may miss normal ones uh, but this was a fun time to mess around in the lab and take a tool that said it couldn't or that said it wouldn't mask it. And I think we, I think we won. Well, I think it was a tie, fifty-fifty. They were right with the uh, with the sim and sysmon, uh, but Crouchright got him. And uh, you're welcome, Crouchright, for that blood. <laughs> so, one of the things that you know I think this brings to light too is so I'm assuming this tool like I haven't really looked under the hood or anything. But I'm assuming what it's doing is basically hooking in to where the operating system is then going to feed things to be logged. And it's basically scrubbing those arguments out before it gets pushed into the log. So it's like just hooking the OS in a way. But what's interesting is, like you said, some EDR tools obviously have visibility because they have different hooks that they would have to go and unhook and do things, right? So when you think about adversaries attacking a network, this is a lot of times where the adversaries, why they want to learn what tools they're up against, because there's not like a one tool that can usually go against all. They're usually customly designed to beat certain things. Um, and so that's that's one of the reasons why they learn it. But that's also, it's there's a huge overhead if you were to make one tool work for everything. That'd be a lot of development, a lot of figuring things out. A lot of things that could break if you do it that way. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting. You know, a good example too, Right. Uh, it's really good at attacking Windows logging because they obviously designed it for that specifically. Um, and, you know, like you said, if you've got something else to help you, you know, crack that nut, then they won't be prepared for it. Right. And I think it gives a, um, a nice little tidbit to identify visibility. Um, if you do run something like this, where are your visibility gaps? If you only have SIM, if you only have EDR, um, yeah, because that's always a big part of the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. What do we need to detect? Can we detect it? So this kind of helps out with that. Yeah, I'm just looking at like hunting. This would be hilarious. Um, I can't <laughs> see timestamps or anything like that, but just without the command line arguments, that's great. I mean, what you'd be looking for like multiple EXEs in the command line, like that wouldn't be normal uh, within a time span or something like that. But that's super mm -hmm. cool that it does hide the arguments because I know you know, sometimes when you're looking for activity, you definitely key off of arguments. And if it's hiding that, you can get away with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, definitely bypassing detections and, and potentially hunts, right? It's like a really yeah. quick and easy way to try to pull that off. Now, granted, you got to move the tool in and stuff like that. So there's other things to possibly pick up on. But um, still, I mean, I always like when people are thinking, like, to attack a problem in different ways for their, you know, what they're trying to achieve. And it's just always fun to see what people do. And it's that cat and mouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. All right, that's all I got. I think Rob is next. Yeah, Rob, you're up. What you got? Oh, okay. Uh, N8N? You want to pick that up for me, Lee? I don't know. Or do I have to share one? I don't know. No, I got it. Uh, it's a, uh, I'm just a big, like, Node-RED user, fully knows. Uh, I'm all about graphical coding. Uh, just works better for me. Uh, not that I can't do it any other way. It's just, I like to see the big picture. 
uh, I use no red a ton, uh, before with a lot of like, uh, implementing my own Python scripts, doing some sentiment and anal- sentiment analysis from like social media, uh, just to see like the tone people were talking about things and if it was, you know, worthy of possibly monitoring a user or something like that, or had to do with the, the utility at the time. So I think this is like a, probably like a step up from that. It looks like for sure, yeah, yeah, but it was like definitely a fan of the graphical interface and you can implement a lot of API stuff. I know they have like Slack here, but it's really whatever you want to do. Cause you can, like I said, drop in uh, Python scripts and everything. I, I love this stuff. And I like that it, it seems still like when you look at the repo, it's fairly still supported. Like there's stuff that's not too terribly old. There's some stuff that's only a few weeks old, even in there where they're updating some small things, but it also it's still hours ago. been around. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got things that, you know, are like years ago. So, you know, it's like been around for a while. So like, you know, it obviously yeah. has a community and it's being maintained. I think those are great open source projects, especially for things like this. Also, right. you don't want to hop on a dead project. Right. Especially if you want to like do a lot of cool things with it over a long period of time. Um, it also answers the question how you pronounce it properly. It's pronounced oh. N eight N. Then why that's what I said. Yeah, I know, but the fact that it's in there, because how many times are like, I oh. mean, reverse engineers pull like strings from the malware and like slap it together and like this is what it's called, and you're like, so I'd okay. have to get like Lee. How else would you pronounce that? Just if you didn't read that, just curiosity. Nathan. Okay. Playing <laughs> on all together. I'm like he like brute force it. <laughs> I get it. Well, was it uh, Node Node Four J or Node Forge or no? Yeah, Node Red. Yeah, Node Red. Yeah, it's similar to this, but I think this is definitely more verbose, um, as far as like what it can support and things. Sorry, Neo. Well, I see this used like offensively, like if that didn't miss a whole attack, that'd <laughs> be pretty convincing. Actually, I should try that. Or even have something like this on the back end. So like everything you're piping, like like you run things that pipes input back to something like this that goes through, oh, yeah. puts things, you know, like, you know, just for handling the data so you're not having to crawl it yourself. Uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. so. uh, Let's see. Yeah, the other one I have is a mind map. I am a huge fan of. Um, I pull it back here. Yeah, well, I like this one. Before, before we jump there, what's your first project with Nathan? <laughs> the first project well the well, problem for me is i don't have the time because i've got too many projects um but i can think of all sorts of things you could just do with it now if i can help if it can help me do projects that would be my first project uh, but, yeah. i don't think we're there yet i don't know what kind of ai type plugin stuff they have i'm sure that i'm sure there's stuff there i not gonna... think the ai stuff is like they're cloud only if you host it you obviously probably don't have the capability uh, to do all that but yeah, that, I did see that, but I, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, this other one is Michael De Carvercieri's uh, mind map. This thing, uh, and he's actually updated it recently. I love. Uh, we got a Windows baseline mind map now. This will show you, and we were talking about logs earlier. I mean, you can mm-hmm. literally look at your bang for buck, what you want to look at, you know, log-wise. And yeah. you know, another project that is updated a lot. I absolutely love this thing, though. I mean, yeah, it's I mean, you think about like when you have a I like I remember 
what do they call it, like a data dictionary. When, yeah. when we were working back on the sock, right? It was like that was something that we definitely wanted to have so we could understand and new people can come in and understand what data we have and what it, you know parts of that are available to help answer questions and things like that. But none of us had the time to you know build any of that out. And but we wanted to create some sort of cheat sheet and he did such a like a beautiful job of it and also really thorough in the right ways. Yeah, it's, especially hunting. You're like, what can I see? What you know? Right. What can I do right. hunt wise? And this just it's a, it's a, it's great. And it's just the priority, the prioritization that you can take from this mm-hmm. is fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, those, those are my two. That's all I got. <laughs> oh, super useful, hundred percent. Um. All right, so. This is where we're going to pivot over. We went over the artifacts that we thought were interesting. Hopefully everyone enjoyed or found some of those useful. Um, but now we kind of want to jump to some of the discussion pieces. And one of the things I want to cover is something I'm actually going to talk to um, tomorrow. Um, but I might need to steal the screen here real quick. I could figure that out. It's like, you know, when you need to do something. I got to do it. You ready? Uh, sure. Send it over to you. Now I got to find the screen I want to share. All right. Show this window. I mean, you see it. They're up. Of course. All right. So the idea here was I'm, I was going to present on something that was going to be about ransomware. Right. And in this process of talking about ransomware, which if, if you guys have ever uh, listened to me talk about ransomware, it's not my favorite because I just feel like it's the lowbrow of the groups, but it's one of the most impactful, obviously, um, at least as of late. And I wanted to go through my process a little bit. Um, and I'm kind of curious in your guys' like personal hunting processes for how you solve some you know things that you've looked at in, in the past as far as like, Where'd you go for creating things or getting ideas for things and then putting them out and testing them or whatever. And since I wanted to focus on ransomware, but I want to focus on, you know, threat hunting, the whole theme of threat hunting, right, is to basically say, um, how can I see this long-term? How can I see a behavior that's commonly being used, possibly shared, all that kind of stuff versus like going after like IOC-based things, right, where it's like short-term type stuff. And so in this process... I basically took all what I like to call a collection and grouping. I took DFA reports. We've talked about DFA reports, you know, countless times on this, and we all dig into them every time they come out because I always have good information. And I took the nine past uh, DFA reports that um, date from January of this year all the way back to April of 2022, um, and I kind of pulled out everything that was unique. So that's what this really behind the scenes look that you're kind of seeing right now. It's really associated to every single key term based on miter verticals um, that could be useful for a hunt or from you know capabilities. And what I really liked when I started doing this was, obviously, every group has some unique things they do, right? Um, but uh, when it comes to ransomware, their goal is or their two main motives, right? How encrypt your environment at scale so that you will feel obligated to do something about it, and hopefully pay them. And now some of the double extortioners to get enough access so they can get a bunch of data off your network and find it valuable. And so in order to achieve that, 
They need to be able to understand the environment they're in very well. So at scale, they know what to do. They need to be able to execute things at scale and they need to be able to move around within your environment. And as I was pulling things across, obviously the most activity that was commonly shared was the execution stuff, the discovery stuff and the lateral movement. So kind of like led up to what requirements ransomware groups needed. And I color coded them to show what different reports. So you don't really have to dig in because I'll show you kind of what I was doing or going with with that. But if there was something that repeated from report to report, I put it in there. So that's why it gets kind of verbose that way. And then I try to identify, like prioritize. So here's an example, right? I looked at what are some of the common things. And some of these things you guys have probably seen when you guys develop content look at reporting, right? Like, I don't know what it is. I don't know. Like, I know I've looked at CMD slash C for <laughs> normal behavior. And I know like Splunk is a great example. One of its uh, universal forwarders will kick that off, but it's also an easy exclusion. So it's like things that are really noisy with things you can exclude. But what was great was that artifact was across six of the miter verticals about how it was being used and every single report, right? And we know when we look at reports, that's like a common thing you see. Regarding, and so even when they did process injection and all these fancy things, they still were having to kick off some things with commands, you know, slash C. All right. And, and the other thing I like is, what's that? And bat files and BBS strips and so on. There's still all that right. man, manual stuff being and done. And that, and that was being done with the CMD slash C, right? And what I also liked is I didn't focus on the martyr vertical so much because that would probably fall just under execution. But if it was an artifact that was seen within those different phases, I included it. So that's why it hit so many verticals. And I kind of walked through it all in like the top choices. And then obviously PowerShell encoded commands, you know, WMIC or WMI doing remote stuff. Um, PowerShell bypass was a big one. And single character files, like that wasn't as common here. But how often, you know, Lee, you and I do the weekly stuff. I always bring that up as a common trait outside of ransomware groups. It's just like the laziness of people, right? Um yeah where they just don't name character, you know, don't put a, a lengthy name to a, a character file or a, a file type. And then the one thing at the bottom I wanted to point out too, just because it stood out, it wasn't very common, but it's something I see in attacks in general. And it's with, when you run, run DLL 32, the structure of the argument structure of that is basically you do run DLL 32. The next thing is your target, which is usually a DLL and then comma and then entry point. What the entry point really means is this is where I need to enter into the library to start the execution of whatever it's, or it's used like the function call or something. But I don't know if it's like, I'm, I don't use offensive tools to build payloads, but I'm assuming it's associated with that, but you can also call entry points, not by name, but by number. And it's very common for adversaries to just be lazy. Like same, same thing with the single character files is do the run 32 DLL.exe, the target file, which is usually DLL, comma, number one. And that's their entry point to do whatever they're going to do. And so I see that a lot too, um, just kind of pivoting on laziness. Um, so that was kind of my process of like, how do I prioritize when I'm looking at something big? Like granted, if you're given like, hey, there's this attack and it's very targeted, or we need to address this now. I, I don't do this type of process, but when I have time where I'm not reacting and I'm trying to be a little more proactive, 
uh, it's just kind of my methodology sometimes is I'm like, all right, I want to solve this problem. Let's get a bunch of reports around a threat or a group of threats or whatever. And let's see what overlaps enough. So I know where I should spend most of my time to kind of get the biggest bang for my buck before I start going to some really unique things, because the unique things usually don't last as long as the like common things like we're seeing here. Right. Like I said, you know, from January this year down back to April of 2022, these things were being seen right from that long period of time. And we know we've seen them outside of that. I mean, it's, we see that constantly, a lot of these things, like these things, I don't think anyone here is unfamiliar with these things. I don't know if you guys are familiar with CHCP. It's one that's kind of unique to ransomware groups. You guys know what that is? I've seen it and we've discussed it. it. <laughs> yeah. So this is only cool when it comes to ransomware groups because, you know, they're, they're, you know, they have asylum in Russia typically. Um, and because of that, they're not really allowed to target any Russia-affiliated things. So CACP, when you're in a terminal or in whatever, it will tell you the language package so you can determine your target set. So when the discovery actions are happening, some of these groups are also running that to make sure they don't accidentally target the wrong <laughs> entity. Gotcha. So makes sense for the ransomware groups to do it. Not so much sense for others, um, yeah. right? So that's more niche niche however you want to say it um but yeah i thought it was uh you know and I, I put this together i'm like you know i don't know how i talk about this process sometimes at a high level and i kind of wanted to show it a little bit i'm not gonna go in the weeds like i will in my talk tomorrow but um yeah if anyone has any feedback that's listening or or any ideas um to add to or take away or whatever i'm, I'm all ears but i'm gonna try to feed you the screen now lee back while you guys can talk through your kind of stuff Bring it. So first thing, so talking about the run DLL uh, artifacts that you, you brought up. Um, so I am not uh, a red team or I'm not a pen tester at all. I've messed around with Metasploit um, to generate enough traffic that for our workshops that we do and for training and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it is a pretty easy tool. I mean, heck, I can use it. So that should speak volumes right there. Um, I will say you can use the MSF uh, Venom module that comes with it to create your own payload. And I created a DLL um, for one of the training. Yeah. And I had to look into that. So I was like, you know what? I always see pound one going. Uh, let me try that to execute. So it didn't work. And so I had to Google, you know, how do I do this? And the, the, for the out of the box argument was DLL main. And oh, yeah. I was like, okay. I don't know the structure of a DLL. I'm not that into it that I can tell you what it even looks like. Um, but knowing that, knowing that DLL main is how it's designed out of the box, knowing that they said pound one, which I'm assuming is like maybe not DLL main, do you think that they are telling it to enter somewhere else because they put a bunch of fluff in front of the code to be like, for obfuscation reasons, or I, I don't know enough about that to confirm it, or even so. I forgot the the terminology, um, but a DLL has functions, ones that are like I would say publicly exposed, which means anything that calls that DLL can use that and directly. And then there's functions inside of it that it leverages to achieve a lot of the things it's trying to do. So there's like 
you think about it, you have like a publicly exposed set of things you can run. And then you have the internal things that are more private to the DLL that help it do a lot of the things it's trying to do inside that, you know, you're able to access kind of like an API would, right, um, for an application. Um, and so a lot of times that's kind of what they're doing is that when they make a malicious DLL, and that's a lot of times when someone wants to make a, a like a legitimate DLL and they figure out to recode it and put malicious things in there, same idea. They either add a, a you know, publicly exposed function that they can then use as just a malicious part of that um, or leverage something in some way in, in that, you know, whatever. I'm doing a terrible job really explaining this, but at a high, high, high level, that's kind of how it works because it's been a long time since I looked at it myself. Um, but, but yeah, so the the pound one, the thing is, is it's not as simple as pound one's always the first thing and so forth. Um, as I was looking at that, there's a specific term that they use to call things by number, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it's a specific adversary. Um, well, well, when I look and see that often, it's commonly China that is using those. I don't know what, what specific adversary that's uh, labeled there, but I see a lot with their stuff. Um, and I see it some with some of the ransomware stuff as well, too, um, from just memory, but it's always interesting that it's never like pound something else, right? So that's what really, you know, kind of threw me off. It's like, it's just weird. It's always pound one, but pound anything. I don't know if I've ever seen legitimate processing realistically where it's always using the pound number call for DLL stuff. Maybe that could be a hunt to look for anomalies of does not equal pound one. Right. <laughs> just that easy. Threat hunting is that easy. Yeah. Solve. <laughs> So yeah, stuff like that. I'm just like, I don't understand it all, but I know I can find it <laughs> as long as you have those little nuggets in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talking about your threat hunting methodology and your threat hunting process, um, I, I kind of took a more granular approach where, um, as Pulley does, gathered a ton of data and analyzed it. Um, did you use your... Um, What's, what's the database you use? Uh, yeah, do you use that? Not yet, um, but I have many, many more ideas for that So to come. Um, I, I take it more from a granular approach of, um, I guess, hypothesis to hypothesis. Um, so, like, you know, uh, if, if I want to start looking for something new or looking for a behavior that needs or it may exist in an environment the first thing i like to do is i always well it depends on what my trigger is if it's a piece of malware if it's a intel report um, normally i'll pick an artifact or a stage of the attack that i won't look at and then i go straight to the minor attack matrix it is just it's like a table document of all the attacks that they've seen all the techniques and sub techniques that they've gathered together of attacks that have been seen in the wild, so it's not like theoretical stuff. It has actually happened, and they document all of it, and then they reference all of it. But they'll tell you, like, APT29, use this command line argument to do this. Um, and from there, that's where I like to build my hypotheses. I like to figure out, like, all right, um, what stage... And, and a, lot of, a lot of this is the problem-solving of uh, prioritization again. So, like, what keeps you up at night? Are you worried about files being dropped in certain locations? Are you worried about registry keys being modified? You name it. So, whatever the answer there is, that's where I take it and look at the tactics, look at the techniques and sub-techniques and say, how can I figure this out? 
what tools have been used and conduct all that research. Um, and now that you have, you dropped that one, uh, was it orange? Was it? Uh, orange cyber defense. Arsenal. Oh, Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That one was pretty cool. Um, I mean, they have the doc or they have the parameters there. Cause normally I would have to go and try and figure out, all right, well, what does slash Y mean? What does slash D mean? And so on. Um, so you have to figure out like, what's the intent when they ran that command, what were they trying to do? And once you identify that, then you can start building out a, uh, I like to call pseudo query. It's like pseudo code, but I was always terrible at it. Um, just, you know, writing down your ideas in human readable format, non tool agnostic or tool agnostic, uh, query language. So put, you know, whatever field you want. process equals this command line equals this. And then whatever tool you're using, you can slowly translate that to what you're talking about. Um, but that's like the process I go through. And then you go through the whole false positives, uh, true positives. Does it uh, does it match the intent of the query? Does the logic, or is the logic sound? Are you finding stuff? Uh, and then so on. But then, then the emulation piece, that's always a fun part because it's always, it's always a worry whenever you search for something and you find nothing because normally the panic is, we don't have those logs. Well, I find we that the hardest piece, to be honest. Like it's, it seems like you can find a data to support your your hypothesis. You can get a good idea, and it's something that doesn't run exactly how you expect it to run. And you spend more time, I think, on emulation. But I think it's really important because if if you spend that much time and you have to change enough things, it could completely change your hypothesis when it finally works, right? So, oh yeah, your intent may start here and go all, all the way over yeah. here. Uh, and then you might find some things that, um, and I like to work from the general to specific. I like to have a very vague mm -hmm. uh, starting initial query. And then I slowly tack things on as I see through the data. Um, and then eventually I can get to the point where it's like, this is quite sound that it's going to be malicious or suspicious, nonetheless, uh, or at least. But that's kind of how I flow. What about you, Rob? I love casting the wide net. I want to see everything at the beginning of my hunt. Um, and I kind of have like a, you know, the normal, I think it's like scientific method. I think at the end of my scientific method is that emulation. And then if that doesn't pan out, I'm circling back around to maybe tack, like you said, tack on some stuff and flesh that out some more until I, and I just kind of refine that process until I have like my perfect, you know, or semi-perfect hunt that I, that I'm okay with. So it's funny you guys hit on emulation, but you guys would never consider yourself red teamers, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> right. No, no, but, we, no. but we do it a lot though, right? It's just funny. Like, yeah, I mean, we've never like, I guess, took those skills and tried to apply them. Yes. But I feel like those skills are very important on both sides of the house, right? Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would I really like, like with our emulation, I like to uh, execute just enough that's needed to validate the query and the yeah. logic. Versus I'm not going to sit there and say, you know what? I need to validate this command. So I'm going to create a whole attack. I'm going to send Polly a phishing email and see if I can get through. And... No. It... <laughs> I think I started off like that. But yeah. <laughs> kind of overdue. That's a lot of work, right? <laughs> I've gotten good with uh, living off the land binaries, but yeah, uh, no road team here. So the one thing I really liked that you said was you know you look at the arguments and you kind of try to determine the intent and i think that's like a really key piece especially when you see arguments that aren't commonly used and then you kind of like assess like well you know 
the access some adversary may have isn't like the same one where they're looking at the screen, right? They're like routing through different things. They have just, they don't know what's coming. We don't know what kind of output's coming back. Um, and they don't know what persists and what doesn't. And so sometimes you find some really unique um, arguments, but understanding that intent really drives the, I think a lot of the behavior because you're looking at human behavior, you know, with technology. And I thought, you know, that's a good tie. They kind of drive then, you to go next. Like if they were trying to copy yeah. something, did it get access? If they're trying to drop something else, did that happen? Confirming the answer. Yeah, sometimes like you might make build a hunt off someone's failure. Like sometimes you look at Intel reports, some things don't work and it's because it, it didn't work and you look at it even more, it, it didn't work for them. Or maybe it worked in that environment just because the way the environment was set up. So, yeah, that's also something that's also, also interesting, like why some things change per attack. It's environment specific. That's funny that you mentioned that because one of the workshops I did, I ran, um, I ran a command and at the end I did slash quiet, but the first three times I spelled it quite. And then I was like, why is this not working? And then I realized I was like, oh, here's what I'm supposed to write. And those logs made it into the workshop. And one of the users took a screenshot of it and sent it to us. And they're like, hey, just want to let you know. I was like, <laughs> emulate real life. Keeping you honest. Keeping yeah, you honest. Right? <laughs> I think um, we're talking about command flags. That's like a double-edged sword for me. I sometimes like putting them in there. If it's a uh, low, you know, uh, you know, on the OS. But when we start getting into this tool-specific, you know, groups use certain tools, those can change and now you got to keep up with that. You know, that's a whole other thing. Sometimes, you know, you got to go there because you want to be able to look at that activity. Uh, but that's also, you know, back to a will and down that query to, you know, be as general, but also specific at the same time, which is hard to do. I mean, you just don't want false positives or too many, right? Like, that's kind of where right, you're trying yeah, to... Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I, I do want to make a call. So, I, I mean, I'm really good at butchering people's names. I mean, these guys know. And they have, like, three-letter names. But... Shimoni, right? The guy in uh, Discord. I like that he drops Inspector Ops stuff. So I don't know if other people listening or you guys are as familiar, but Spectre Ops, when you talk about especially Windows environments and how certain things work at a very core level, they have really good write-ups of some some specific operational things on many really advanced topics. And they do a good job breaking them down. The only thing sometimes I find that it's hard is some of their stuff isn't directly applicable unless you have the right tool sets and skill set uh, sometimes. But I, I still think they're very, very good reads. And those guys are all very, very talented. Um, and they, I think they even have some really good GitHub repos too that maybe we'll pull some nuggets out in the future. Um, but yeah, I just want to make a call out like great find. Love those love those guys as well. And uh, I do feel like it's, it's definitely worth looking at more of their stuff. So, if you guys have nothing else, I think we have a kind of another interesting uh, section. And this is kind of, yeah, so Lee, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you got hit with the same questions from the same student who's doing research. I always love this. Like in LinkedIn, sometimes people will reach out um, and ask questions and things like that. Um, and I'm more than happy to respond and interact. I, you know, I, I, whatever I can do to help communities, especially people, students coming up, stuff like that, or people, you know, junior in the field, I don't mind answering any kind of questions. So feel free to reach out and ask whatever you want, pretty much. Hey, yeah. Timeliness is just going to be the biggest thing. But uh, we did get a slew of his questions and we'll, we'll kind of uh, see how we would answer those here for, for some of those. Um, 
So some of them are pretty general and feel free if we pose the question and you have an answer as well, throw it in the Discord chat too. It'd be good to kind of see how we all might either, you know, relate or differ um, in answers for some of these things. So um, I guess since I was calling you out earlier, Lee, I'll have you start with one of the questions you, you wanted to pull from the pile um, and we'll go from there. All right. So one of the questions was, uh, what have some of your purposes or goals of conducting a specific threat hunting campaign been? And what are some of the challenges you've encountered? And what did you do to overcome them? So and what do you guys want to answer that first? You want me to just go ahead? Well, I'm trying to find, I had the answer here and I'm trying to figure out where, where I put it. Um, so you can go ahead and I look for that. <laughs> so fine. So, um, purposes of goals. Um, normally the way I work is I like to focus on TTPs or tactics, techniques, or procedures and behaviors. I, once again, driving back to the miter, I'm, I'm very miter driven simply because all those, I, so I guess I've never been threat Intel. I've never been CTI. Um, I let those gurus play the attribution game while I just want to find the bad. Um, so I'm very behavior driven. I like the human aspect of it um, because you're like learning through research where they might want to go or where they usually store things. Um, so I always or mostly focus on miter attack uh, tactics, techniques or procedures or, or behaviors. So the goal there is to provide coverage of the different techniques or the miter attack framework. I'm not saying that I want to cover all of it, but the main key points that are there, I love focusing on persistence. I've said it all, I've said it all the time, but I love finding persistence because if you can remove that, then you, but if you find that early enough, you have to, you force the adversary to hopefully try and reinfect the machine or re-compromise your environment. That if they had made it too far in, and you find it and stop it, then they have to go through the whole process again, which may take time. And if you're wasting their time, that's, that's the goal, right? Um, so some of the challenges, and one of the biggest challenges normally is visibility. Just not having the right logs to hunt for and detect things will cripple uh, an environment. If you don't have... I mean, the basic, I mean, Windows event log, go back to the mind map that Rob shared. Look at execution. Event code 468 with command line arguments enabled. Take a look at those processes that are being executed because if you're not monitoring that at least, then you can't have, you don't have visibility into the things that are happening on your computer. All the, like a bunch of other stuff um, is in my mind like contextual. Don't get me wrong, it's very useful in the investigation, but um, we have like detections built for that already, like um, brute force, like a bunch of failed logins. If you have that enabled, okay, cool. You know, you're gonna, you may see the brute force login, but if you can't see the command line arguments that are thrown or the processes that are executing um, from a log perspective, then I don't know what you're putting in your sim. Um, hopefully it's not just firewall logs. Um, and the way to overcome that is, um, just hit me right there. Like, 
<laughs> Look what we did at convention. That's just one today. Nine million event. Now, um, so what do we overcome? So personally, I um, I had the experience, um, the roller coaster ride of deploying Sysmon into an environment, um, and I identified just by moving into the detection engineering team that. Sysmon was much more granular and uh, like almost a free ER for Microsoft. Um, but at the same time, it took some work. It took a lot of configuration, took some testing and stuff. Um, but eventually we rolled it out. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were able to find a pen test based off of it because of it was PowerShell execution. Um, and we were able to find it a lot quicker than the normal logging that we had. But it just... I mean, introducing the visibility, finding a tool that's capable of looking for and auditing what you find or what you want, um, is it's tough, especially when you start talking about not just money, but if you're talking about open source, uh, like for Sysmon example, one of the questions is who's going to maintain it? How long yeah, is that going to take out of a day? Is that going to take them away from the normal you know time? Um, whereas an EDR, that's going to cost money, but you know, it's a lot, it's already created. It's like drop into place. You're paying someone else to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those, those are the big things that I like to focus on. Those are the big hurdles that we've seen. Just visibility. You find your answer yet fully? I did. If you want me to go next. Bring it. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things I always worry about when I thread hunts is sometimes being too specific. Um, because I like to think of, okay, so we have evidence of an adversary behaving this way using these tools. Um, now if I, the way I'm identifying them, or if I'm trying to like fingerprint the exact behavior, am I missing other ways they may attempt to run things? Um, or if they were to change one little thing, does that mean I'm going to miss them now? And you kind of have that false sense of confidence. Like, oh yeah, we've got that covered. And, and so... This is, I'm going to kind of heart back on like some of the, you know, that's, so that's like always a challenge for me and example, um, of this and kind of how I over, over, overcome these things. Like, uh, I was doing a, uh, hunt where people were doing, uh, trace routes. Right. Um, but one of the things they were controlling in an environment was how many hops that they will actually go through before they terminate the trace route. And they were making it a very short trace essentially and that prevents it from traveling too far and potentially going outside the subnet too far or going across security devices that may see it or whatever the reason may be not really sure what the motive was behind all that but to, to control the hop count is you know a das h but when you look at the data and you see that's how things are run if you do a forward slash H, it also works. And so it always worries me. And that's not necessarily covered in documentation sometimes. So so when you sit there and say, I'm going to look for this behavior, it's got to be, you see the hop count designator with the trace route. You're like, I got this covered. And then all of a sudden someone uses it a little differently and you're going to completely miss all the activity thinking it's there. And so my kind of like the thing I worry about sometimes is, not thinking about that when I'm creating the hunt, right? Not thinking about those edge cases. And then also, because if I don't see it in the documentation, I may not try it. But in this case, 
Um, I wasn't rushing through everything. And I thought about it. I was like, oh, I wonder if there's other ways to run the arguments. Or sometimes I try to put arguments in different order, right? I'll try to, you know, is it order specific? Because sometimes it makes it easier to hunt or write the query for that so it can be more specific. Um, and I was able to find that forward slash H also worked and Windows didn't care for the argument's sake. And so spending that extra time researching and then also just trying things like, you know, imagine you're the adversary trying to use a tool and you're, it's not working or you're trying multiple ways of using it. That's kind of how I go through my emulation process sometimes just to see what, what breaks and what doesn't, um, and gives me a much better data set for me to actually write a more effective hunt where I can kind of like, once it's validated, once it's matured, I can kind of forget about when I see that I'm like, no, we're good. Like I can't think of any other possible way, not saying that there's not, but, um, so that's usually my biggest fear is not being able to cover what I expect to cover. Um, but obviously taking the time for emulation and research is how I solve a lot of those things. Yeah. It is nice whenever there is a structure to the syntax versus mm -hmm. being able to just throw the command. Yeah. Uh, throw it anywhere. Yeah. By you, Rob. Yeah, Rob. Uh, I think like I've really been hung up on trying to find, uh, you know, people doing the easy things a different way, you know, like Python scripts for discovery or, you know, where are they going to put this it ends up with a million wild cards in my, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. just trying to whittle that down has been like a real challenge lately. Uh, I've got a couple hunts that I've done that I'm, you know, comfortable with that are out there, but yeah, that's like a, a ever changing thing. Cause they can use different languages and you just, you know, you just never know where they're going to throw, you know, the script out at. Uh, just to hit, you know, they're hitting layups, but they're they're difficult layups. So that is what I see a lot of. Um, but that's like really been taking up my time recently. <laughs> no, I like one of the things I've always wanted to be able to do is, you know, we kind of have these hit pocket hunts that look for something similar. Like for instance, like as a as a an easy to understand example, like creating a user on a system. There's probably like five to six different ways to do that. But a lot of times when we see creating a user by an adversary, we focus on how they did it and variations of that way. It'd be really cool for me to want to go back and say, hey, we've got all these hunts about creating a user. Can we somehow combine those into like one like monolithic hunt that says, here's all the executions you expect to see. And with those executions, here's these arguments. And then we can say, this is create user hunts, right? <laughs> and, yeah, you know, yeah. and have it not be something that puts too much strain on the system as well, but also is a, as a way to answer that question. Like, Hey, how do you handle this with this? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think just, I ended up there because of my background in threat intelligence that mm. I read, you know, so many, before I even make a threat, I, I will, you know, research to exhaustion. So I'm yeah. not like looking at one article and then off, off to the, you know, I don't do that. I will keep going pages and pages on Google until I find, okay, I'm exhausted. All the articles I can, Reddit posts, you know, the tweets, whatever I can find. And now let's go right to hunt, right? So that's kind of like my gathering process. And I've arrived recently at just like, okay, they're doing the same stuff, but in a slippery way, how can we catch that? Where are they going to drop their phone? You know, that kind of thing. Well, man, I, I take like the 60-year-old man route reading Fox News on his phone, where I just look at the headline and then ask chat GPT. <laughs> and we work our way through that process. Yeah. There's no wrong. Yeah, I like, I like the answer that Shimoni gave a WMI. WMI was also like a heartache of mine 
Um, and I found like really weird ways to look at it. Uh, one of the things I did like that I never really deployed because it was like, a, it would take a lot of input configuration stuff. But I think Mandy had put out a way to put a WMI listener where you can basically, there's ways where you can actually configure your own log and windows events. And they basically created a forward listener for WMI. Every time it's enacted, it would basically capture that. Um, mm -hmm. It just sucks. It sucks that uh, windows hasn't done a good job of creating events around it. Now, granted, I can understand how it's kind of behind the scenes. So there might be a lot of verbose uh, or verbosity uh, to use a word if it's not really one. And, <laughs> you, heard you know, like, like, yeah, you're in here first. So, but you know, like that could be maybe a potential blow up as far as the amount of data it can generate because the system's just using on the back end constantly. But yeah, you know, there's creative ways people have solved it, but I remember same same horror stories, man. I I, I remember when everyone's like, we got to lock down PowerShell. I'm like, no, I want people to use PowerShell because if the adversaries use PowerShell, we know what to look for, and we already have all the you know logging in place. Like we had that one um, pen test, Rob. I remember you were asking someone like, hey, were you using? Again, I think it was related to PowerShell, and the pen test guys were like, uh oh. They clearly can see yeah. everything we're doing with PowerShell, and they switch, and all of a sudden they hit a blind spot, right? It was like a right, yeah. very obvious. So, you know, sometimes it's good to create those easy avenues for adversaries to walk through. Yeah. I Personally, if, if you're going to create something to run on your operating system that has the power to be abused for malicious purposes to gain or even run at a higher privilege level mm. great auditing for it <laughs> yeah. please like don't don't make that be something that like we have to ask for or dig into or i mean like you said this shouldn't be hard you should be able to be like here's wmi logging right here there's a you can, I mean, you can powershell has its operational log source it has its own log source why because it has powershell command lines and those you won't find in venco if you remember, that didn't exist in early versions of the PowerShell. So that was something Windows released because it was being abused so much. And they added that visibility to later versions of PowerShell. So, and then they could potentially do that with other things. I don't know why you want to just have that out of the box. I also don't know why you won't have Sysmon installed out of the box as well. <laughs> that should be native to Windows. Windows 12, come on, Sysmon. It would be interesting. It would be nice. So, um, so yeah, one of the questions I want to ask that I thought was kind of an interesting question because it really got me thinking about it. And it was, you know, he asked, can you discuss any ethical considerations or challenges related to threat hunting that you've encountered in your work? Now, obviously I haven't encountered any of these, but I kind of did the hypothetical. Um, and that is proper threat hunting is supposed to be proactive, right? And one of the things that usually helps legal when it comes to or, or in, internal or when you think about privacy laws in Europe, right? Um, if you're responding to something, something's telling you to look at things. So you kind of have the right incentive in place to say, yeah, I'm not just, you know, invading people's privacy, like doing big brother to everything, right? But with threat hunting, you're kind of, saying, I'm going to go look at people's stuff. Or I'm going to go look to see what people are doing. And so I, I always thought like, 
guy, could that be an ethical concern or a concern when it comes to like privacy things? Now, granted, there is a, that's why I think having a good process is important. Like we, you know, we do a hypothesis driven hunt. It's like, we know what we're looking for, why we're looking for it. And this is the justification versus that could be something dangerous when you're like, oh, go find some bad. And you like go rabbit hole. Like I'm going to go look through people's emails and see if I can find like, yeah, you might find bad things, but if depending on your access, that also might not be a good place to be. So I thought it was an interesting way to look at it because we want people to be proactive and could that get people into trouble? So I'm hoping the answer is no. <laughs> Red Hunter, right. you want and, and not because I am one, um, but it's kind of like that whole idea of once you enter a workplace, once you enter an organization, you kind of give up some rights. All right. Not in uh, Europe, though. <laughs> there, yeah, they're not allowed to look at their work emails. Right. It's crazy. There's got to yeah. be some level within the organization. I understand, like, what data, like, ads can get from you or, you know, all that type of stuff. What PII is. Well, like, there's that, but, like, in Europe, they can't, if you, if you have a company email, they're not allowed to look at your emails in your company email. Like, you have that privacy there. The, even the organization? So their privacy laws are very, very different and very, and they do protect people even at work versus it's funny. Like sometimes people freak out in the U S like you can't do that but in the U S it's owned by the company and they can do whatever they want from the company's perspective. As long as they, you know, make sure to advertise, they can do that to the, the people working there. So but yeah. I have to be like, I'm about to, I want to go through emails. Can I get waivers or permit? Can people opt into that? Yeah, I, I'd say I don't know how that process would handle because I don't know if people ever ask that specific question. Like, I, I've never heard me talk about it, and that's why I love this question because it kind of made me think, like, is that a possibility? Like, do we run into constraints where we can't be proactive in certain ways? Or if we have a good process in place, then can that be justified and, and explained and approved? You know what I mean? So well, it really puts it puts ownership on process, which I think is where things yeah. should always be in security. Um, but like, you know, a lot of people, when they think of threat hunting, they think it's the cowboys. They think it's the guys I'm going to go look for bad and they go chase rabbit holes and find interesting things. It's like, no, there really is a process and it does make it more fruitful sometimes. And this might be a good justification as to why as well. Well, if you can hunt properly without mm -hmm. having to see the contents. So if I, if I, if I can see outlook or word or excel executing a process like mm -hmm. PowerShell. i would hope maybe it's not my job maybe at that point where you're just like you know what here's the process chain that i saw it's your response that's your job but we don't have that title too yeah, <laughs> yeah. buck passer i think obviously in the u.s when you click accept and log into your work machine yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if I'm hunting and I find something, uh, yeah, I think there's a conversation for that to be bubbled up if that's not my job to look, you know, well, at that point. It's like, your job, said, right? That's a good point. Well, yeah, yeah. That's where I am. So, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, it was uh, an interesting take on all of all the challenges I've dealt with being in security and what we can or can't do based on HR or legal, which has never really been fully true. It's always just been a way to avoid complicated problems um but yeah i figured 
if you're going to be proactive because security usually is reactive, it's a different tale. So I want to know then, do they have limitations on what event logs you can capture and audit? I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, usually there's nothing personal in the data. So I think it's all has the privacy has to, I mean, this shows how dated I am as far as last time I looked at any of this stuff, <laughs> but I, I feel like it's gotta be tied to when it says privacy, like, you know, PPI privacy, personal stuff, not so much system stuff, but I don't know. I mean, it's always an interesting question. I'm, I'm sure they've already solved it because they're obviously doing security and things, but, uh, we're just not well-informed. Well, if there's anyone out there, <laughs> Please drop us a line. Has I anyone ever gotten in trouble? Can you please tell us <laughs> what that was like? You are no longer employed. Right. I mean, we're fired for this issue. And just a uh, heads up for us how to handle it moving forward. Right. Yeah. Protect us. We're selfish. My, my question? Yeah, I think you're up, Rob. All right. How do you stay updated on the latest threat intelligence and cybersecurity trends uh, to improve the threat hunting effectiveness? I'm going to go back to Nathan. I have feed. <laughs> <laughs> I know myself, uh, I'm really into Twitter, uh, like as a tool. It's like a live news feed for me. I got a certain yeah. set of um, other, you know, researchers and you professionals. Formerly known as yeah. Twitter. Sorry, yeah. Formerly known as Twitter. Uh, yeah, that's like that's like the heartbeat of what's happening in the world. You know, all over, you can get information right away. People are talking about it. I think I actually automated something around that uh, before. Around, uh, I don't know if Paulie, if you were, no, you weren't. It was uh, somebody else. I had a different manager. But basically, I had this whole idea of like um, hashtags of. Uh, APT groups or, you know, different group names. And then they would bubble up if people were talking about it on Twitter. And then that would alert, tell me to go check it out. It was a whole, you know, thing for C-level people to say, oh, they got the, they got a board for this. And really it was just a nice way of showing, hey, you know, we can see live on the wire, the chatter around, you know, APT, whatever, APTX, you know? So, but yeah, that's, I live there, pull down samples from, you know, whatever URL I can. But yeah, that's, that's how I go about it. Tweet Deck was nice before it uh, became a premium yeah. service. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Pump yeah. So, go yeah. ahead. The one's very basic. I'll, I'll, I'll go with the basic answer. You you razz us at the end. I'm about to say, that's <laughs> not great, but go ahead. You got bookmarks. <laughs> you got bookmarks. Go through the articles. I do follow Twitter. Uh, we have our own feed that I, I'll, I'll poke around. Mostly it's like just a manual. Yeah, I have my go-to sources that I, I can trust and that normally publish stuff quickly. Oh. So I'll stick with it. Yeah, my biggest thing, and you kind of saw the way I work with the grouping and collection stuff. So I just need one thing to tell me something's going on, right? And it'll be, it can be Twitter. Um, a lot of things are just team internal. I think that's what's great about being on a security focused team where everybody's kind of looking at different things. And then if something is of interest or something that's hot, 
they bubbled up to the team. So you kind of have extra eyes and, and their take on this. So like Rob's really good at this. He's been doing this a while. So when it comes to him finding something, it's like, well, now I don't have to have the same skill set as him because I know he's kind of got some of those things covered. Right. Um, but when I do find really interesting feeds or things I should be looking at, then I just go nuts. Right. Then I start figuring out different ways to look for different, different versions of the group name. I look at source country specific things. I look at, sometimes I look at geopolitical things just to see what's going on associated with, Hey, there's this new activity. What could possibly have motivated it so that I can potentially do some predictive things on, is this going to continue or is this going to stop? Is it a one-time thing? All that kind of stuff. And I do that kind of grouping and collection like I showed with the ransomware, and I start pulling together all the possible reports. I look at old reports. I look at new reports if I can find them. And I start cross-referencing to say, well, what has changed from a behavior? Like, I've got these old reports, and I can say, okay, they do these type of behaviors. Do I see any of those behaviors in the newest release of things? If I do, I'm like, well, this is a great hunt. Prioritizing on those, doing those things. If I see some unique things, they're kind of really good, I think, to create hunts on just because then I can say, if you see this activity, then you at least can do some form of attribution in a way because I haven't seen anyone else do these types of things. Um, but that's kind of how I handle a lot of um, a lot of those sources, right? And then as I'm doing that process for that group collection, I pay attention to which ones I typically like. And I usually bookmark those as far as just like good blog streams or whatever. Um, so that if I don't have anything hitting the board or people alerting me things, I might go jump onto their stuff to see, well, what have they been talking about lately and things like that. Um, and I love, and I, I do pay attention to the sources and what they do share. When I see screenshots, I love sources with screenshots and I love sources that give me command line stuff and they kind of break out random code stuff or whatever. Um, because it gives me an opportunity to catch something they may have missed. And that's another thing. When it comes about threat intelligence, you know, I always, I, I, early on when I started here, I talked to Lee a couple of times because we'd be looking at the same threat reports and we walk away with something completely different. Um, and so I think that's also something to take note of is when you're doing your, your, your process to stay up to date with threat intelligence and, and cybersecurity trends, sometimes, even though, you know, some people have some things covered, it's, it's good to work as a team because you will notice different things or, or leverage your different strengths um and and so yeah that's something that i've learned too with trying to stay up to date with threat intelligence is it's good to have those conversations or share things not just hey i'm going to silo myself and collect things and then analyze it so um but yeah that's kind of my answer absolutely you get comfortable with looking at the data you like mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and you'll always gravitate towards that and that's why like you said having that team member to be like well what about this and pointing out different things that you may have glossed over is very very valuable. Is it me again? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, sure. Bring it home, Rob. Yeah. How do you see the future of threat hunting evolving, and what trends do you anticipate in the field? AI and machine learning. Ugh, vomit. Yeah, it's kind of gross. <laughs> like, you're not wrong. But it's going to be weird. It's going to be a weird space because AI and machine learning is still solving everything in the world, right? There's not there's not anything it's not solving. No one talks about the failures of AI. They only talk about yeah. how it's just all these places and all these things. So there's a lot of failures that happen to get to where they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a good question.
I think about, um, you know, we always talk about baselining and like, I think it would be really cool for a company to maybe use AI to baseline what their, you know, what their baseline is that, that, you know, I could think of AI use for that and then you can hunt after the fact, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be nasty here. (laughs) So something that really separates threat hunting apart from a lot of other areas is I feel like the human element is so important and it still will be now. Let's not say that AI, I look at AI as a tool and it could augment um, one. All right. So here's, here's another, here's a good example. Um, Threat hunters typically have at least a few years of experience in the field. There's very, there's very few people that I know personally that have like just got out of school and became a threat hunter or, you know, just broke out into cybersecurity and their first job as a threat hunter, right? Because they usually need some sort of institutional knowledge of where they work potentially, or they have enough security-based knowledge to kind of build off of, but they have that experience so that when they're looking at things, they're understanding more than the average person who's just breaking into the field. Now, with AI, though, I feel like it can bridge some of those gaps. So I feel like we can have more threat hunters because now you kind of have that, um, you know, AI on a shoulder kind of thing when you're working through things that you can basically bounce things back and forth and be educated on the fly which is, to be completely honest, it's kind of how I use it sometimes. When I see certain arguments or certain commands or certain whatever, sometimes I throw that in ChatGPT and say, what is this trying to do? And it gives me its feel, and I'll validate some things or look at some additional things. So it might lower that bar of entry um, to some regards. But also, I feel like threat hunting is going to become a lot bigger because one of the things um, I didn't call out when I was showing my grouping and collection stuff was I pulled strings and commands that most EDRs aren't going to even pay attention. They'll log it, but they're not going to alert on CMD slash C. They're not going to alert on the pound sign one when it comes to run 32 DLL, right? Because there's not enough context there to say something is bad. So what we do as humans and with tooling is we're kind of shimming in all those gaps that tools don't monitor, detect, or alert on. And... I think people are going to realize threat hunting sits in a nice space where it fills those gaps. And that's what makes when you talk about defense and depth and what's going on. I feel like that's something I wouldn't say it's going to evolve, but I think people will see more significance if people start employing it and, and maturing it. I think the hardest thing right now, a lot of people have that, that do threat hunting is getting it to the next level. Sometimes people have good threat hunting foundations and they got to figure out how to level up, and that's where some people struggle. But I think the the field is changing, so that's becoming more and more possible. So people are able to see the potentials that uh, they didn't weren't able to realize before. So I'll go along with you and say AI for real this time. Um, <laughs> go along with me. Like... <laughs> it goes it, well. It goes along with that, like you were saying, baseline. Um, I love looking over a large set of data. But at the same time, how how fast can a human pick out patterns and anomalies and so on from there? That's where that level of uh, using the math and the science behind it really, really shines. Because if you can say, you know, show me, um, and Splunk's machine, le- uh, machine learning toolkit is fascinating with this. You could throw it, you know, a year's worth of data and say, Show me anomalies. Show me things that didn't stand out in these fields. And you pick your fields as find you know what the probable cause is. Then it'll say, 
boom, here's your answer. And here's why. But it also shows all the other data. So it doesn't leave you questioning, well, what isn't it showing me? It shows you the data that's like, well, this was found, but it's not an anomaly, but you might want to see it. So you can start looking through all the data as well. Um, and I think you nailed it when you said the human should make the decision. AI should present the data, however you're using it. Um, and I know some tools are adapting um, natural language processors um, or processing, which is, you know, just writing a question like into chat GPT, like prompting it, like show me infected computers, show me this. Um, I think that's good. Once again, lowering the bar of um, how to use a tool. So instead of having to learn the query language first and the order and the operations and, you know, modifiers and so on, you can simply just say, show me computers that ran PowerShell in the last five days. That's easy to do. Um, getting the logic behind it, getting the process down, getting um, all the, the theory behind it is still going to take some time. But the biggest hurdle with that is that if you don't know how to, uh, or if you don't know how you want the data presented, you may never be able to ask that tool the right prompt to see what you're looking for. So there's always going to be that issue of, well, I want to see all these things, but how can I ask it so I can output a table, output a PDF report, and so on, or get a little more com complex with the, the prompt itself. Um, and I'm waiting to see what the next cloud is. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, everything was local, so we had all these local logging. We had all these you know, on-prem devices. Then everyone shifted to the cloud because it was amazing. Um, mm -hmm. and, so, and we found out it was someone else's computer. Then we're like, well, we need to take it. You know, we start ingesting those log sources. What's that next step in technology that's going to be um, presenting that next challenge of how do we monitor this? This is in our environment. How do we monitor it? And I already feel like IoT is there. Um, granted, I don't think that um, they provide enough logging or proper logging or even useful logging, really. Um, because, I mean, look at how many times IoTs become or IoT devices become botnets. Uh, but I, I want to see what that next, um, what that next new technology is that all so of a sudden we're all blind to it. You you brought up a good point that I liked was I always like to break through hunting into three areas. There is the analytical, which is kind of where you're kind of using math and things and visualizations. And there's the threat intelligence driven, and then there's the awareness, like you know your environment, you know what to look for for specific things, and the analytical place is where I feel before this whole ML AI drive was kind of lacking. Like people had some things, but it was like home built tools, uses of data, really smart ways of doing things. But I feel like that area will definitely grow and evolve. What I'm concerned about is people will become over-reliant on that. Once it, be, once it emerges in a, in a space, because I think those three buckets have to be equally filled. And if you rely too much on either one of them, um, then you're going to be overconfidently blind. So, uh, but yeah, I like I like where you're kind of going with some of that because I think it falls right into that. Oh, and by the way, Tosh did present uh, some of his responses for the, the pound one. 
Um, and it is called Ordinal. That's what the number is. I remember that now after I was reading it, but the or you can either call by name or Ordinal, which is the number. So. So any, any last remarks on that question before we uh, close it out here? Because I think we're coming up on time. We are, and I got nothing left. <laughs> Empty Wait for it to become sentient. sentient. <laughs> I got nothing. All right. Well, um, I, I guess we'll close it out here before we, because we don't dive into another giant topic. Um, so with that, I really just want to thank everyone for joining. Um, and once again, love talking shop with friends and colleagues. Uh, if you like what you hear, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about anywhere else you actually listen to podcasts. And leave a good review. We're actually we're getting some high ranks in some foreign countries and like top 10 and things. But it'd be really nice to see um, more of that in general in, in places where we want to be received well as, as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, share the news. Give us a good review. Give us five stars, whatever you do that, you know, assuming you like us. And also be aware that we do a weekly um version of this podcast is you know 30 to 45 minutes probably more 45 minutes where we actually take five of the the trending topics happening during the week and try to give some technical and also hunt based uh expertise knowledge whatever um on breaking news topics intelligence reports technical write-ups and things um and that happens on wednesdays so yeah, definitely check us out there. Um, and I hope you liked what you hear and look forward to the next one. Quick shout out to Romania. We were top 10 in Ted yeah. Over. <laughs> so if you're listening now, you're awesome. Keep it up. <laughs> All right. With that, happy hunting, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.